have access, simply by being a human being, you do have access to capital M mind. And capital M mind is aware, it's luminescent or radiant or clear, and it's spacious. And in this mind, none of the objects have any effect on it whatsoever. Doesn't mean there are no objects, that's important. The objects still arise, but you're no longer going to. So the study of cause and effect is also the study of, of the three uh, hallmark characteristics that Buddhism refers to when they talk about reality, which is impermanent. All the objects of your mind are impermanent, right? So when we talk about uh, Anicca, we're saying that you can think about your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife, so everybody's got one of those dudes. Or your dog, if I missed anything, you got something. You have something, a goldfish maybe? You got something out there? All right, so I want you to think about anything you want, any one object. Say pizza, I've been using pizza, but maybe you don't like pizza. Sushi. Right, so you, you just put that one thought in your mind. Right? And uh, see how long you can hold sushi in your mind before it disappears. Now, you're being tested here, right? So you're probably going to do better than normal. You can maybe hold sushi for like 10, 15 seconds rather than five. You know what they say about men, right? And they think about that thing like every five seconds. But, but when they think about it for every five seconds, they only can hold the thought for about a second. So there's a whole lot of gaps in this story, right? But they can only hold that one object for a second. Girls, 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 girls. Okay, you love her. Girls, 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 golf, girls, golf, girls, golf. And the longer you're married, it's golf, golf, girls, golf, 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 girls, golf, golf, football, baseball, hockey, girls. The nature of the object that is appearing is impermanent. You can't hold it for very long. So, when we talk about meditation, we're trying to simplify the object down to an archetypal object, say a flower, and we're trying to get you to hold your mind on that flower for a duration, for a longer period of time. What's going to be your habitual tendency? Girls, golf, work, money, relationships, husbands, wives, jobs, careers, cards. You go, why am I sitting here thinking about a flower? I mean, I've got, there's a lot more important things for me to do than be sitting here thinking about a flower. I got to think about my job. I got to think about my career. I got to think about what I'm doing on Friday. I got like, there's a party coming up. I don't want to sit here and think about a flower. But because you can't hold that thought for an extended period of time, the tendency of the habitual pattern, because remember the brain, the brain is plastic. And because of the brain is plastic, it kind of goes in familiar ways. And because it goes in familiar ways, it tends to repeat those ways. So by going back to an object, it also ties it to other objects. So now it ties you to your husband, say. I'll pick on somebody I know. Wife, right? Now that it goes back to your wife, it also goes to the fact that the wife just blew the credit card or whatever. And now it goes, now, so wife was, I love my wife. She's beautiful. She's fantastic. She's amazing. She's great. You spent what? <laughs> So the problem with life in general is, the, is it's so fast and it's so quick that the mind can't adhere to anything for any length of time. And so it tumbles. It tumbles from object to object, from object to object, from object to object. And because of that, it can't go deeper into the underbelly of capital M, mind, and find the bliss. 
So you get a moment of bliss. Yeah? You, I'm sure you all have moments of bliss. But you can't control them. They're not, under, they're not under your supervision. They depend on what you're doing on Friday. They depend on the stimuli that's coming at you. You have no control in this field. So when we talk about impermanence, it's also suffering. Because, oh, I, I wanted to go to the movie with my wife this weekend, and she's got to study for an exam. So you first you have loving wife, movie, happy, blissful, good time, and then she can't go, she's got to study dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. Dukkha means suffering or struggle. And then, of course, you've you got to figure out, with these two things, you've got to figure out, well, where are you in this mix? Where are you when your wife's not there? Who are you when your wife's not there? Yet, who are you minus your wife? In other words, if we remove your, let's say you were a little toy box, <laughs> and we just start removing the objects of your life, then at what point can you say you are who you are? So I don't know, we'll pick on uh, somebody I know fairly well, we'll pick on uh, Ella. So we're going to start taking things away from her. So she's Swiss. So let's say we could take Swiss out of the box. We'd have cheese. <laughs> anyway, so the... No, it's not funny. It's okay. I'm, by the way, I'm from the prairies. I'm from Western Canada. So just take for granted that anything I say is not funny. <laughs> we ourselves find ourselves very humorous, but that's why we're alone in the prairies. <laughs> nobody, nobody else does. Anyway, so we're going to take out the Swiss, and she's also she's tall, right? And so she would identify herself as being tall. So let's say we could take tall out, and she has uh, blackish hair, and so we take out the black. So, so we take so we've got long hair. We take away long hair. Uh, she she's kind of fashion conscious, so we take away fashion conscious. We take away the fact that her father was like this and her mother was like that, and she grew up with this economic or that economic. We take away that uh, her brothers were like this and her sisters were like that, and she was born at a certain time in history, and that she has a certain cultural social conditioning. We take all that away. In other words, what we're taking away is we're taking all the objects by which she knows herself to be her, we're taking those away, what is she left with? Take away her gender, which is not to make her male, you understand, it's just female gone. So what you're left with is when you take away all the labeling objects of your mind, woman, Swiss, 29 years old, 29 years old, I said that right, 29 years old. Um, when you, when you take away all the objects by which she identifies her as being her, how can she identify herself as being anything? But you go, well, that's ridiculous, because she is these things. But she wasn't. At one point, she wasn't uh, two meters tall. At one point, she wasn't two meters tall. At one point, she wasn't a post-pubescent woman. She was a pre-pubescent girl. At one point, she wasn't... Well, I guess she was always Swiss, but anyway, uh, you know, her brothers and sisters stayed the same. But I think if you follow the logic of my argument, you'll see that if you take away all the objects in her mind that she identifies herself by, then she disappears. Now, when we talk about Buddhism, what we're talking about is not trying to get rid of Ella. <laughs> She's too much fun to want to do that with. But what we're getting rid of is all the objects by which Ella gets into trouble with Ella in her world. And where Ella gets in trouble with her world as Ella is by identifying with her objects of mind. Right? 
Now, from the point of view of objects of mind, these are with her throughout her life and for the rest of her life, and they're just going to keep doing what they do, and that's okay. We don't have a problem with that. But there is no peace of mind in that world. It's not possible there, because there's always going to be uh, likes and dislikes, attractions and repulsions, and that turmoil is going to cause her to be in turmoil at various times. If, on the other hand, Ella comes into contact somehow with this essence of mind, which we're calling again spacious, aware, and luminescent, then she doesn't need to know who she is. Because that mind itself is the mind of transcendence. And in a sense, this mind is in the right hemisphere. So when we talk about when we talk about nirvana or liberation from suffering, we can say it's pretty much a right hemisphere experience. Right? But the left hemisphere is the hemisphere that knows about it. <laughs> so you know the Bible says, "Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing." This is kind of what it's referring to. Christ consciousness or Buddha nature is a right hemisphere experience. The left hemisphere, right, is that which labels it and goes, "Oh, what was that?" or "What was? That? What's that like?" So when we talk about what is Buddhism, we're talking fundamentally about kind of a stroke victim. There's a there's a, uh, let me explain what that means. There's a book called uh, out there called um, Stroke of Insight, which is about a brain scientist who had a stroke and proceeded to describe her experiences as nirvana light in her right hemisphere. But she, all she had was the now. She had bliss. She had total connection, total harmony with the universe, total oneness with all of life, but she couldn't balance her checkbook because she had a stroke. The funny thing about it was, she said in her book, which I recommend, is that even though she was dwelling in the most unified, blissful, amazing state she'd ever experienced in her life in terms of bliss and unity and all that good stuff, she desperately wanted her left hemisphere back. Why? Because she knows that without her left hemisphere, she cannot survive. She can't function on her own without her left hemisphere. So nature has done this very interesting thing. It's given you the ability to experience God, if you will, in terms of a right, a right hemisphere experience. But you need to be able to apply it and integrate it into your life from a left hemisphere orientation. This class, this talk, is all left hemisphere based. The experiential event that I'm trying to hopefully in some ways describe to you is a right hemisphere moment. So that's kind of what Buddhism is. Any questions on that? If you have a question, you can raise it. Otherwise, I'll carry on. Okay, so next, where is it? Well, fundamentally, it's in the mind, right? And you know it through its objects, it's sensing objects, it's feeling objects, and it's mental objects. Underneath you have this kind of level of quanta, but fundamentally it's kind of like Blaise Pascal. I don't know whether you are up on your French philosophers, but Blaise Pascal, the famous French philosopher, said that all suffering in your life happens because of your inability to sit in an empty room and do nothing. Because, well, what happens when you do sit in an empty room and do nothing? All heaven breaks loose, right? In other words, your mind starts going into all its objects. Now, from a point of view of contacting that right hemisphere 
mind that I'm talking about, the aware, luminescent, empty mind, in order to contact that uh, transcendent consciousness, in fact, you do have to sit in an empty room, do nothing, and allow yourself to gradually disrobe, can I say that, uh, disarmor, or uh, let go of all the objects that have currently appear in front of your mind, as interesting and fascinating, as wonderful as they may be, they in themselves eventually have a cause-effect result that leads you into more objects, and the inevitable end of objects, of course, is that they're impermanent and therefore somewhat dissatisfactory because they can never really be got hold of. And so we come back to this earlier point about the flower. Well, why do you meditate on the flower? You meditate on the flower as kind of an anchor, or a boy, B-U-O-Y, right? Buoy? Uh, that you tie your mind to in order that the, all the other objects of your interest and your involvements and your engagement in life, right, don't distract you from. So we're temporarily taking a holiday from our very fascinating and interesting mental, emotional, and physical world to try to hold our attention just to one point long enough that the bridge or the or the teeter-totter those little water things you know you know the water things that hit the stone yeah anyway so the so the teeter-totter flips from left hemisphere which is where you're all terribly occupied with yourself to the right hemisphere and when that fulcrum point tilts you enter into the spacious clear aware mind for a period of time for most people, it lasts only for a few seconds or a fraction of a few seconds before the wonderful and amazing idea about how I could make a whole lot more money. And I can't meditate anymore because I just had this great idea about how to become the richest person in the world. I'll meditate next week. I, think I can meditate later. And I'll, right now, I, I can think of, you know, And there's that wonderful program on National Geographic on it. You know, with the wine and the shepherd. Right? And so the nature, the habitual mind, the habitual nature of your addictive mind, addicted to phenomena, is that the minute you start sitting still and just trying to look at the flower, it says, no, 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 let's go over here. No, no, let's go over here. Let's go over here. Let's do this. I don't have time to do this. I got, like, I've got a busy life. I've got to take care of this, 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 and this, and this. All of that's wonderful. We love that mind. It's a precious mind. It's a lot of fun mind. It makes you all very interesting and entertaining and all your diverse manifestations, that's all wonderful, but it will not produce peace. It cannot produce peace. It's incapable of peace because of the nature of impermanence, because of the nature of one thing struggling with another, and because of the fact that the minute you try to hang on to it, it tends to slip through your fingers, doesn't it? So, by holding your mind in one place, on one object, Right? What happens is that the small M mind, with all its objects, slowly gets the message that you're not going to let it go wandering off on its normal journey. It's just going to stay right here with this thing, in this case a flower. Right? So we're holding the flower in our mind, and we're saying, we're not letting my mind go from that flower. Now, what's your first reaction in your mind when you hear the word, no? Don't let your mind wander. What's the first thing you do? I'm wondering. Nobody can tell. Nobody can tell. The minute you hear the word no in your mind, don't let your mind wander, you tend to wander more. Hmm? Why? 
Because when you hear the word no in your mind, even if it's a good no, no, don't drink and drive, you go, I can drink and drive if I want. Well, of course, you probably don't do that anymore because it's not only uh, bad news, it's dangerous. But the point is that when you hear the no in your mind, whose voice are you hearing? Parents. Parents. Mommy and daddy. Okay, I, I shouldn't have that second piece of cake. I can so I can do what I want. I'm a I'm, I'm a free adult. I have I can do what I like. I can have that second piece of cake. Right? Now, of course, with pieces of cake and, and potato chips and beers and whatever you know, sushi and uh, edamame. You know, you know, I can have enough. You know, potato. You can never ever open a bag of chips and eat one chip <laughs> ever ever in your entire life. Have you ever done that? one chip? No. You say oh, I just I just have to, I just have a few chips. Well, maybe you don't have that kind of personality. I, I, I personally don't. I, I, uh, I inherited my non-addictive personality from my mother, so I, I actually don't have an addictive personality, but many do. But more importantly, when we get to the point of meditation, is that, is that there's a place, there's a place in the stream of consciousness where if you hold your mind on one object with one point and you, and you don't allow the distracting thoughts and impressions to tilt you off, your mind will get more concentrated. Does that seem normal? It's kind of true by definition, right? If you hold the object, you are by definition more concentrated. If you, get, if you can hold the concentration, there's a thing that happens in the brain, through the chemistry of the brain, that has nothing to do with spiritual mumbo-jumbo, it's chemical. As the mind holds itself in place, the chemistry loop between the hippocampus, the thalamus, and the amygdala, or however you pronounce that, start getting this loop going. And it goes, ching, 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 You start to feel good. And it's free. No drug. You don't have to worry about side effects. There's no fallout. You know, you can still go to work, you know, you can still drive a car, there's no drunk, there's, there's no getting a ticket for awakened mind driving. Right? So what happens is that as you hold the concentration and as you, as you keep your mind in that space, the, the concentration develops a circular brain loop chemistry, dopamine and so on, oxytoxin in the brain, creates an energy pulse, creates a, a wave pulse that produces what? Bliss. I mean serious bliss. I mean maha bliss. And the longer you hold your attention, the longer you hold your concentration, the greater the bliss gets. This is kind of what we mean by God experiences. When someone has it, like Billy Graham, <laughs> Billy Graham had a revelatory experience of God when he was selling used cars. Right? Based on just such an event, he was, I don't know, looking at something and he had this revelation and the bliss opened and the door had opened and the mind came to a concentrated point and he saw the capital M mind awareness lucidity spaciousness and he called that God because he didn't have a name for it other than that and now he's lived his whole life on that one experience his whole ministry is based on that one experience but hold it kids not only can you have this you can have it all the time Imagine a life where 24-7, 365, your capital M mind is right there with you, pumping out, if I, if I can put it this way, pumping out spacious, 
lucid, blissful clarity. And your little M mind can still fight with the guy about your tax bill. Does this make sense? But you have to be able to allow the mind to come to that spot in order to learn how to access it. And to do that, the tendency is the mind is the tendency of the mind is to go off back to its objects. And so this is where it's at. It's in the empty room. They say in, in uh, Zen, it's closer than hands and feet. Right? It's right here, right now. You just have to allow your mind to rest into its natural spacious emptiness and not get distracted by the object. In this case, the object would be probably me, if you're, if you're looking this way, right? or you're listening. Right? And so you hold that state. So now the next question becomes, and feel free to ask questions if you have any. The next question becomes, why can't I see it? Assuming you can't. Well, why can't I see it? Well, because you're too busy with the objects. Your, your objects of your mind, your sensations, your feelings, your thoughts, your concepts are uh, distracting you from it. Right? It's there, it's like the clear sky, and all the objects of your mind are like clouds. So it's there, but you're too busy with the cloud. You're too busy worrying about work. Right? Are you too busy worried about your relationship? Are you too busy worried about money? Are you too busy coming up with an answer to the problems of the universe right? to be able to see it? So that operant conditioning is there. Right? Habits, emotional conflicts, habits, uh -huh. and basically something called the four obscurations. First of all, ignorance. Now when we talk about ignorance, we're not talking about being stupid. We're talking about ignoring. The ignorance is I'm turning away from capital M Ella to small m Ursula. And that's why we can't see it. So, and in that turning away, then now I have an object. So remember, Ella isn't an object. She's only a metaphor for this capital M mind. But Ursula is an object that seems real. She's a feeling, she's a sensation, she's a thought. So my mind now having that, there's me with the feelings, me with the thoughts, me with the ideas, and then that creates an outer, apparent outer object reality called a you. Right? Now, in capital M mind, there's no difference between me and you. There's the, that, that mind isn't my possession, it's not your possession, it's not a possession, it's just a state. But the minute I start talking to you, right, then it's you and me, and then how am I going to relate to you, and how are you going to relate to me? And that gets all very complicated, doesn't it? Um, what I'm going to say to you, what you're going to say to me, what we're going to do, what we're not going to do, whether we're going to agree, whether we're not going to agree, whether we're going to go out, whether we're going to stay in. It's all very time-consuming, it's all very busy, right? And that, that ignorance of the Kaplan mind keeps me involved in the self-other dialogue. Does that make sense? When we're involved in the self-other dialogue, it's going to create a number of possibilities. One is primitive views and the other is conflicting emotions. Do you have a best friend? Is, are all her views right? Or are your views more right than her views? And what about emotions? Do you, you, get, you get along with everybody all the time in a wonderful state of harmony? Or do you have these kind of... Now that's, from the point of view of small mind, that's just normal. Right? That's just life. And there's nothing you can do about that because people are different. But from the point of view of capital M mind, right, it's not really necessary. So I can still have these uh, dances, if you will, in the realm of my small M mind. But in terms of my capital M, M mind, they fundamentally don't exist. So that's why you can't see it. How do I do it? 
Well, that's where Buddhism gets called a religion. Because the minute you talk about how you do something, you need a methodology. And as soon as you have a methodology, you then have Buddhism. Buddhism is a methodology in terms of helping you experience capital M mind while still being able to live, function, work, and go about your business with small M mind. Right? But remember what I said. Fundamentally, transcendent peace uh, Buddha nature, Christ consciousness is not possible in the left brain mind. It resides. I mean, I'm being a little, I'm being a little incorrect here, but just by way of making the point clear, it resides in the right hemisphere. But you can't live in the right hemisphere. You have to live in the left hemisphere. It's taking care of business mind. Mm -hmm. So. The path uses your left hemisphere mind, loses, uses your left hemisphere analytical abilities in order to keep your mind fixed and concentrated long enough to access the right hemisphere. And when you get good at it, you can reside in both simultaneously. But it's, it takes a while. It takes a while. To be good at anything takes ten years. Well, yeah, you go, well, but Mozart wrote uh, symphonies at seven. Yeah, but they weren't any good. I mean, his symphonies didn't get great until he was 19. He'd been at it 10 years. Right? And this is the thing that you have to recognize about whether you're a golfer or a cook or a housewife or a computer programmer or an artist or a musician or a lover or whatever you do. It takes 10 years of solid effort applied effort at your particular uh, interest to get good at it. And so too, it takes at least 10 years to get good at accessing right hemisphere brain while still being able to function in left hemisphere. Okay? So there's that. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail here on the nature of the path because it's a huge subject. And there's a million books written about it everywhere, and you can access it everywhere, right? And if you want to know more about it, you can talk to me or Paul, who's in town. If you're from Tokyo, John teaches in Tokyo, and so on. Linda teaches here as well.